Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from the 1997 film Rosewood. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Welcome to today's episode. It's so great to have you here. Now, before I begin to talk about Rosewood, I want to share an email from a listener who wrote to me not long after he finished the Jurassic Park episode. His name is Barry Spath, and he writes, quote, Listening to End of the Jurassic Park podcast, you both speak of your love of soundtracks being opened at that time. I'm a few years older than you, but I had the same awakening. Mine came with Henry Mancini's Romeo and Juliet. I bought the LP, but it was mostly dialogue from the movie. However, the love theme was on the LP, and I listened to it until the record wore out. In the same year, Barbarella was released, and it was the second soundtrack I would buy. I still listen to the Barbarella soundtrack to this day. End quote. So I just wanted to share that because I don't know of anyone who says the Barbarella score is part of their regular rotation. It goes to show that we all have different tastes, and though a lot of us might have entered into the world of appreciating film scores through John Williams or another major composer, some might have a different story, and Barry proved that. So with that done, let's talk about the score to Rosewood, which was recorded at the end of a relatively quiet 1996 for John Williams. With the film coming out in early 1997, it would be the first of four films released that year for the maestro, who was turning 65 that year. The average American would seriously think about retirement at that age, but not John Williams. Two of his 1997 scores would have him collaborating with Steven Spielberg again. Three of the film scores would deal with real-life events, and two of those would dramatize real stories of the black experience in America. The first of those stories was Rosewood, which became a movie after producer John Peters saw a piece on 60 Minutes about an all-black town that was completely destroyed when a race war is incited by the all-white neighboring town of Sumner in 1923. Peters enlisted the services of screenwriter Gregory Poirier and director John Singleton to turn the story into a film. This was Poirier's fourth produced feature screenplay and the first to deal with a decidedly dramatic subject. For Singleton, it was yet another film in which he tackled the issues dealing with race relations in the United States, though it was his first not to be set in contemporary times. Filming on Rosewood began five years after he made history as the youngest person and the first African-American person to be nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards for his work on Boys in the Hood. I'm going to be talking about a lot of plot points in this episode, many of which might be deemed spoilers. So if you don't want to know, either watch the film first or just be prepared. The production used two survivors of the Rosewood incident as consultants, but the essence of the story received some major overhauls. For one, the character of Man, played by Ving Rhames, was a fictional person completely invented by Poirier. It's not uncommon for screenwriters to create fictional characters in biographical films, but usually those fictional characters are what are called composites of multiple real people whose actions are done by one person in the movie. Mann's role significantly altered the role of the real-life residents of Rosewood who were more instrumental in helping survivors escape. Sylvester Carrier, one of the most prominent Rosewood residents and is played by Don Cheadle in the movie, also had his history changed. History says that Sylvester died when the white mob attacked his house, but he survives to the end of the film. If you're a fan of Western movies, you will recognize that Mann's actions are very similar to that of Alan Ladd's iconic performance of the title character in the 1953 movie Shane. Like Shane, Mann is a mysterious stranger who rides into town looking for a little peace and quiet just as trouble is brewing. So basically, Rosewood is a remake of Shane with real-life events serving as the jumping-off point. I always find the film to be very moving in its portrayal of the chasm between whites and blacks at the time, and the actors in the film give very believable performances. I wasn't bothered by the inclusion of man into the story, because the story still follows mostly what really happened, and Ving Rhames is a great actor. 
He was riding a wave of playing in prominent Hollywood movies, starting with Dave in 1993 and Pulp Fiction in 1994. Before working on Rosewood, Rames acted in 1996's Mission Impossible with a role he would play in all six Mission Impossible movies. Esther Roll, who played Florida Evans in the popular sitcom Good Times, has the hardest role in the film. She plays Sarah, the matriarch of Rosewood's most prominent family, and the maid to one of the white families in the next town over. Sarah is a witness to the savage beating of Fanny, the woman she is working for, at the hands of a white drifter. After Fanny says a black man beat her, the Sumner men are whipped into a frenzy and start their assault on Rosewood. Sarah stays quiet, knowing that she could be killed for speaking the truth. Sarah is at many times the film's conscience, the screenwriter's voice, and the audience's eyes. She has a few great speeches that really heighten the drama, and I'm sure Singleton was very happy to have her in the cast. Every frame of this film puts you in the right time period. The film starts on New Year's Eve 1922, and the costumes and set design do well to set the mood and establish the setting. The music from the right composer can do that as well, and Singleton's plan to put in a blues flavor in the score with a hint of jazz was handed to Wynton Marsalis. At the time, Marsalis was famous for playing the trumpet, having won multiple Grammys in jazz and classical categories before he was 25 years old. He had never dabbled in film scoring when approached by Singleton, but the assignment proved challenging enough. Marsalis' composition definitely kept him in his wheelhouse, drawing mostly on jazz sounds to musically enhance the action on screen. He even contributed a couple of songs, and one of them is simply called Rosewood. After Marsalis recorded his score, he and Singleton analyzed its ability to work with the visuals. Apart from the film, the music sounded fine, but Singleton felt that it didn't enhance the drama of the story in certain scenes. Singleton asked Marsalis to make some changes to the music to make it more dramatic while keeping that 1920s Florida sound. Marsalis made some attempts to revise his score, but he and Singleton couldn't agree on the finished product. So, Marsalis left the project, taking his completed score with him to put on an album sometime in the future. That album would be called Real Time, and it was released in 1999. Now, very, very, very few rejected scores are ever made public. So, it's a great thing to have Marcellus' music available to us. In addition to the Rosewood song, there are 20 other tracks. Marcellus asked several of his friends to perform on the score as well, including Shirley Caesar, who was known as the Queen of Gospel Music, and Grammy-winning violinist Mark O'Connor. Caesar sang a couple of songs on Marsalis's album, including this track called If I Hold On. Help me to find a Lord, some peace of mind. I am tired, alone and cold. But I know if I hold on, that sweet Jesus will bring me home. Here's an instrumental track called Mr. Man that I suppose was to be thematic material for Ving Rames's character.
If you have seen the film, that music doesn't really work well for the character of man. And there are a lot of other pieces like this, including one that probably played during dramatic piece after Rosewood's homes are torched. Here is just 30 seconds of it, and I'll leave it to you to decide if the music matches the visuals of homes burning. I completely understand why Singleton and Marsalis parted ways, based on that music alone. If that was to go along with some of the scenes that I'm thinking about, it fails terribly at conveying the mood of the visuals. It feels like some guys on a stage in a smoky jazz club, not a dusty city in 1920s Florida. A couple of pieces of source music that Marsalis wrote, such as the bluegrass music during the New Year's Eve dance, remain in the film. But with Marsalis off the project, Singleton had to work fast to find a replacement composer. Now, this was late fall 1996, and the film was set for a February 1997 release to coincide with Black History Month. If you read the liner notes of the 2013 expanded score release, you would believe that it was pretty much John Singleton alone who reached out to John Williams to step in and save the picture. But John Peters certainly was involved in a big way. You'll remember back in the episode talking about the score for The Witches of Eastwick that I said John Peters, who had produced Eastwick, would get to work with Williams once more. Peters attempted to get Williams on board for the Tim Burton version of Batman in 1989, but that wasn't to be. When it was time to call up a composer to replace Wynton Marsalis for Rosewood, Peters found his opportunity, and certainly Singleton was not going to object to John Williams being the replacement. In the original CD release, Singleton wrote, quote, In high school, my day-long Sunday study sessions were filled with music from Raiders of the Lost Ark and the moving piano music from E.T. And he goes on to say, quote, As my collection of tapes accumulated, I had noticed that all of the film scores I purchased were the work of one man. Without realizing it, I had grown up listening and studying the film music of John Williams. So when director and composer met for the first time, it was probably very similar to the way all of you have reacted when meeting John Williams face to face. I can only imagine because I have never met the maestro, but I digress. Singleton got out of his fanboy moment and showed John Williams his film. Williams liked the film and the message it conveyed. Even better, Williams had a plan for the score that fell in line with Singleton's idea. None of the ideas Williams had for the score to Rosewood would come out of thin air. He had worked briefly in gospel music in the early 1960s when he arranged and conducted a gospel album called Great Songs of Love and Faith, and a couple of Christmas albums with the great singer Mahalia Jackson. But that was just one of the many different musical genres Williams would need to draw on for his score. In writing music for the Deep South, Williams only had to go back in time to his work on such scores as Conrack, the Sugarland Express, and even more importantly, the Reavers, which is one of the closest relatives to the Rosewood score. How close? Well, I would call Rosewood score the evil twin to the Reavers. In terms of plot, both take place in the early 1900s and deal with race relations. The similarities are very obvious in the music for the opening titles. And here's what you hear in the first minute of the Reavers. Thank you. 
And here's what you hear in the opening of Rosewood. Both start with the guitar before the main theme of the film emerges. Mood-wise, the Reavers is very light and cheerful, while Rosewood sets up from some dark times ahead. The Reavers handles the proceedings with a little more levity in the score, especially since it's viewed through the eyes of a young boy. After the Rosewood main theme plays a few times, there's a brief performance of a theme that I will call the Danger Theme. It has some mysterious chord progressions in it, and I'm sure there's a tritone in there, which those of you who are regular listeners of this podcast will know as the devil's tone, as chords jump up three whole notes. And after that theme, we go back to the main theme that fades out as we close in on the carrier home in Rosewood. Our introduction to the all-white town of Sumner couldn't be more different from the music Williams gave us for Rosewood. Listening to this, I sensed that Sumner could also be that backwoods town in Deliverance that gave us that famous dueling banjos performance. It's sinister from the start. This melody won't appear again in the film, but it perfectly sets up the understanding that the white people are poorer and maybe less educated than their neighbors in Rosewood. It's the use of the harmonica and mouth harp that I think really convey that. The standout accomplishment of Rosewood's score is the inclusion of three gospel songs, all written entirely by John Williams. Only two of them appear in the finished film, though. It's interesting that Williams didn't reach out to any of his lyricist friends to help him with the songs, but perhaps that is because there was a time crunch and adding another collaborator would have made things very tight on the schedule. The main song of the film is called Look Down, Lord, 
and it sounds like it would have been a church song written in the early 1900s. What I find extremely interesting is that the song does not feature any music, even though Williams makes a melody out of it for use in the underscore. Its first appearance in the film comes as a sort of eulogy for a black man who has been lynched by the white men. A few minutes later in the film, Man decides to leave Rosewood until the hysteria dies down. As he rides off, it seems like Look Down Lord is being performed inside the Rosewood church, without musical accompaniment. The lyrics definitely feel like Williams was inspired a bit by Marsalis's song If I Hold On, or at least guided by Singleton to write lyrics in the same fashion. Shirley Caesar participated in Williams' score in two key moments, one extremely heartbreaking and one very uplifting, and both use Look Down Lord. The heartbreaking moment comes when Sarah confronts the angry mob in front of her house. She has the courage to tell them that the man who assaulted Fanny was actually white, not black. Her statement angers the men, and she is shot dead. Shirley Caesar cries out for Sarah in the aftermath of the shooting. Look down, Lord, look down. This time I'm coming home. 
Shirley Caesar returns to the soundtrack later as man is leading the women and children to a train that will take them to safety in nearby Gainesville. This is one of my favorite musical moments in the film with the use of the strong drums to emphasize the urgency of the situation. Shirley Caesar's vocals are very poignant here, changing the tone of Look Down Lord from a song of death to a song of hope as the women and children are loaded onto the train. The lyrics, I'm coming home, are now used to mean Gainesville, not heaven. Oh, I've been weary And feeling tired, oh Lord It's dark now And I've lost my way Sweet Jesus, Lord Won't you guide me now Look down, Lord Look down I'm coming home now I'm coming home now I'm coming home now Look down Lord These two musical moments emphasize the major fault of the 2013 presentation of the score. Caesar's vocals are not included on those two moments on the CD that presents the entire score, just the music that plays underneath. I've reached out to Mike Mattesino, the producer of the 2013 CDs, and he said that they did not have access to Caesar's vocal tracks when putting together the new presentation. That confirms what I believed, that Caesar and the chorus that sang the actual songs didn't record at the same time as the orchestra sessions. Luckily, if you only own the 2013 CD release, you do get to hear Caesar on Disc 2, which offers the original soundtrack presentation from 1997. The second song that plays in the film is called Light My Way, another gospel spiritual performed as a choir. This one comes as the train takes off and man shoots down the white men trying to stop the train from escaping. Again, no musical accompaniment here. I think the plan was to highlight that songs such as this in the 1920s might not have been performed with music. Most Negro spirituals, as they were called, were created in the fields when black people were slaves. That idea continued in churches after slaves were freed, and some towns were so poor that they could not afford a piano. So Williams was piggybacking on that and creating these two songs. And he wrote a third song that was to be played as the train was leaving Rosewood Town Limits. It's titled Freedom Train, and maybe its lyrics are a little too on the nose.
This song was not used in the film, replaced by a longer performance of Light My Way. So, those are the first three songs Williams ever wrote on his own. I really wish he had the confidence to write more original songs on his own, but those he would write later would borrow lyrics from existing works. Now that I've discussed these three songs, I want to go back and highlight some of the outstanding score moments in the film. One of them is a love theme created for man and a school teacher named Scrappy. Williams portrays the innocence of the relationship with the most innocent instrument in the orchestra, the recorder. The main theme that played during the opening credits becomes Man's theme as the movie progresses, and that's evident in the scene when Man thinks that running away would be a good idea. He says goodbye to Scrappy before then, and Williams does a nice back and forth of the main theme and the love theme during their conversation. Let's go back to the moment when Fanny wrongly accuses a black man of raping and beating her. The music here should be called the wrongly accused theme, a repeat of two very powerful chords that rise and fall and definitely make you feel uneasy as the Sumner residents rush to Fanny's aid during her screams for help. The strings come in more urgently to echo Fanny's false torment before returning to the wrongly accused theme.
This stirs up all the men in Sumner to search the swamps for an escaped convict, who we know hasn't shown his face in town, but still stirs up the white man's imaginations. As they search the swamps with dogs, Williams unleashes a great piece for strings and guitar, with a mouth harp continuing to showcase the lower class status of the white men. The dogs pick up a scent that leads them to Aaron Carrier, who denies the charge of rape or knowing anything about it. The music picks up again as they carry Aaron away. This is probably my favorite musical moment in the film, perfectly matching the visuals so well. In the film, most of the music in the scene is rather hard to hear over shouting and screaming, so it's often hard to hear the mouth harp, which is why it's great to have them highlighted so well here. The Sumner residents enlist the help of neighboring town to continue the search for Fanny's supposed attacker, and the mob decides to kill many of the people in Rosewood and burn down their homes. The four-note danger theme from the opening credits takes front and center here, followed by high-end string chords as we see the burning homes. So you remember that music I played earlier by Wynton Marsalis that I said belonged in a smoky jazz club and not in 1920s Florida? And I also thought that it was written for scenes in which we see the Rosewood homes being burned? Well, John Williams wrote music for those scenes as well, and that's what I'm going to play for you right now. And it's going to be clear to hear why Williams was obviously the best choice. That danger theme came back at the end there as the sheriff's deputy joins in the quote-unquote fun of stirring up the violence. One more great musical scene during the riot comes when Emmett, the son of the extremely racist Duke Purdy, sees a mass grave full of dead people, all black and mostly women and children. The sight brings out the strings playing in a gossando to make us feel a bit uneasy.
Emmett can't stand the sight of the mass grave, and his father reprimands him. Williams underscores this conversation with sad cellos, signifying Emmett's emotional state at the moment, while those glissando violins keep playing in the background. A very close second for the best musical moment in the film comes near the end when the white men have captured Man, who they finally believe to be the mysterious escaped convict that they burned down Rosewood to find. Man has a noose around his neck and is on top of his horse. The men attempt to have the horse run away, leaving Man to hang until he dies. The horse doesn't move, so the men figure they'll shoot the horse. Man orders the horse to run away, which causes him to struggle in the noose. And Williams lets the strings do the talking as he hangs. The sheriff realizes that they might be hanging an innocent person, giving Williams the chance to bring back the wrongly accused theme before a fight breaks out. This gives man the opportunity to untie his hands and escape, with low strings and piano accompanying his attempt to break free of the noose. Notice the rising chords in the brass and strings leading to a shot of the cut rope. Boy, even without the visuals, that music gives me goosebumps. I'm sure John Singleton really loved hearing that music performed, then matching it to that scene. He definitely had no regrets about his second choice for composer right then. Brass instruments are not used very much in the Rosewood score, but there is a great moment that should not be ignored for the trumpets. In a great scene after all the hysteria has died down, Emmett decides to leave his father in an attempt to resist being a racist like him. Williams figures this is probably the most heroic moment in the movie and gives Emmett's departure the most heroic instrument in the orchestra, the trumpet.
Even though the town of Rosewood was almost completely destroyed, and even though we see the result of that destruction in the final shot of the film, I consider the movie to have a happy ending in the same way Schindler's List had a happy ending. Lives were saved, and the survivors brought this untold story to life. But unfortunately, almost no one was interested in this film, even though it was released during Black History Month in 1997. Rosewood was made for $30 million, but only earned $13 million at the box office. No one was watching Rosewood when it was released on February 7, 1997, probably because they were all lined up to watch the re-release of The Empire Strikes Back that weekend. The original Star Wars trilogy was getting a massive re-release with the three films coming out a week apart, and this was to drum up interest in the recently announced prequel trilogy that was to come out in 1999 and was being filmed at that moment. I remember watching all three on those opening weekends because I had no memory of watching any of them in the theater in the 70s and 80s because I was very young. The experience of hearing John Williams' incredible scores blasting from theater speakers was truly an unforgettable thrill. So going back to Rosewood, I just want to kind of go back also to Wynton Marsalis. And though his score was rejected, he did get some very good news as Rosewood was fizzling out in theaters. That spring, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Music for his Blood on the Fields composition for orchestra and choir. As much notoriety as he would get for his work as a composer and performer, he only worked on three feature films, none of which made more than two cents, and all dealt with characters who played the cornet or trumpet on screen. Maybe if Marsalis had been in the business in the 1960s, when jazz scores were popular, and people like John Williams and Henry Mancini were taking on those projects, Wynton Marsalis would have been a very popular film composer. So I don't know why people didn't want to see Rosewood. I remember watching it in the theater and was very moved by it. More than the plot of the film, I was going to see it because I knew John Williams was writing the music. It was the first time I was going to see a movie almost specifically because John Williams was involved and I wasn't disappointed. I was disappointed, however, when Rosewood was not one of the nominees for original score for the 70th Academy Awards. Not that Williams' name wasn't on the list. He would get a nomination for his other film about being black in the United States, which I'll talk about in a future episode. Also, the two songs he wrote that were used in the Rosewood film were not nominated for original song, but that's probably because they were not eligible. The rules state that an original song must include lyrics and music, so a cappella songs like the ones Williams wrote couldn't compete for Oscars. Now, Despite Rosewood being a box office flop, everyone seemed to walk away from the production unscathed, particularly Ving Rhames, who would appear on HBO later that year as Don King in the biopic about the famous fight promoter. The role won him a Golden Globe, which he famously tried to give to co-nominee Jack Lemmon, and he also earned an Emmy nomination. And that would be the peak of his career, even though he has starred in more than 50 films since Rosewood. And I don't want to forget his latest role as the voice in the Arby's commercials. John Singleton only directed five more films after Rosewood, including the Shaft remake and the second film in the Fast and Furious series. He dabbled in directing TV shows, including Empire, and one of the American Crime Story episodes dealing with the O.J. Simpson murders. Singleton died on April 28, 2019, after suffering a stroke caused by hypertension. So I hope everyone listening to this episode seeks out Rosewood and watches the film. It has a lot to say about race relations in the 1920s, and maybe there are some similarities to life in the United States in the 2020s. So next up on the baton, John Williams reunites with Steven Spielberg for the first time since Schindler's List, going back to Jurassic Park for the inevitable sequel. I'll be joined on that episode by Alex Hoffman, who will have many more positive things to say about the score and film than I will. But like many of my co-hosts have done, I'm sure he'll change my thinking about the score. I'm looking forward to continuing this journey through John Williams' film career with you on the next episode. Until then, everybody... The baton is down.